As we get older, we realize we never had a clue what awaits us around the next corner, what we'd have to face, what we will fear, and God forbid, what we'd have to do to survive. I've been scared to death by events out of my control more than I care to remember. There was terror at 3,000 feet, a bear knocking at my front door, and the death of a child at my hands. These are a few of the events that are tales from the edge. When I was a kid, I thought pirates were romantic. They were gallant, heroic figures, chivalrous guys who rescued damsels in distress. There was Captain Kidd and Blackbeard, Long John Silver, and more recently, Hollywood's Jack Sparrow. Piracy was also a childhood game, like duels with cutlasses torn from a picket fence. Well, Blackbeard is long gone, but a new and violent breed of pirate is taking his place, plundering ships in most oceans of the world. Piracy, the scourge of 17th and 18th centuries, is back and has returned with deadly and terrifying results. Pirates, I mean real pirates, the pirates that roam the seas today, are hardly the swashbucklers of my imagination. They have little in common with the romantic, rum-swilling rogues of Hollywood, they're not the cutlass-swinging high-seas adventurers with a, an ice for a skirt and a quest for gold. These high-seas gangsters are cruel, gun-toting, desperate men who would as likely pull the trigger on their assault rifles than play nice and negotiate. They pack grenade launchers, anti-tank missiles, military-style rifles, and are employed by warlords, corrupt government officials, and transnational crime syndicates and terrorist cells. Victims of piracy no longer walk the plank, if in fact they ever did, yet the violence is sometimes more shocking. In one case, pirates in the South China Sea lined a ship's crew against the railing and slipped hoods over their heads, clubbed them to death, and kicked them overboard. Only recently, piracy was a crime out of control, not just the well-known attack on the Maersk, Alabama, and the kidnapping of Captain Phillips, made famous by Hollywood, but to attacks on cruise ships, naval vessels, and passing yachts. I was attacked by pirates. I was one of the lucky ones. I survived. It's an event that lives with me to this very day. It's one of the most frightening experiences of my life. But I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. It all started years before when I left San Francisco on my little sailboat to, uh, to live the dream, to sail to exotic tropic islands in the South Pacific, Tahiti, Fiji, and then on to New Zealand, Australia, and Singapore, and points west. I even intended, possibly, to sail around the world, alone, I just concluded a grueling two-season stint as a head writer of a network soap, and boy, did I need some fresh air. My boat, the Unicorn, was only 32 feet long, but she was stout enough for ocean passages and comfortable enough for me to call home. It was built in California by a company who originally built patrol boats for the U.S. Navy in Vietnam, boats with a hull that was thick enough to withstand bullets from an AK-47. Now, the AK-47, the Kalashnikov, I was personally to discover, is weapon of choice of pirates. I'd been sailing alone across the South China Sea to Singapore from Borneo. 
setting off single-handed was not recommended. Before I left Indonesia, the harbor officials there had warned me that a cargo ship steaming through the same area had been attacked by pirates the night before. Now, piracy was not a threat I took very seriously. I was more concerned with the difficult navigation through the reefs, dodging heavy ship traffic and getting enough catnaps during the long passage. The distance between Pontianak in Borneo and Singapore is about 1,400 miles, and if I was lucky, I'd average 100 miles a day. It was going to take me two weeks to sail through one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. That meant for two weeks of catnaps in the daytime and wide-awake vigils during the long nights, I'd be dodging merchant ships, ferries and fishing boats, and even pirates. It was here that the ships slowed down to merge with other traffic on the way to Singapore or beyond, shipping lanes that linked Europe to the Pacific, the Persian Gulf to Japan, and China. This was the entrance of a highway for a third of world commerce. 60,000 ships a year sailing through these waters with so much traffic, that would be a little difficult. Difficult enough to worry, not without the worry of pirates. Yet it was in these waters that pirates were the most active. There were enough easy targets, I thought, for pirates to go after any vessel they chose. So I was not really concerned about being attacked. Pirates go after those large oil tankers and those big container ships. I figure I couldn't be of much interest to pirates. After all, no pirate would want an ocean-battered, slow-moving sailboat. Pirates have kidnapped crews, and if I were kidnapped and held for ransom, well, there wouldn't be anyone to pay. And if I were killed, no one would ever hear of it, just another sailor who disappeared without a trace. It seems hard to believe that the monstrously large cargo ships that towered over my boat were vulnerable. I mean, they were huge. Some of those merchant ships were a thousand feet long, unimaginably long. That's longer than the, entire, the Empire State Building is tall. The bridge of a ship might tower 200 feet above the surface of the sea, and from that height, the watchstander at night would never see me, and on his radar, I'd appear as merely a blip, if at all. So, pirates were not really my worry. I was more concerned about being run down. But those big boys out there were concerned. At night, the cargo vessels were brightly lit up with halogen deck lights as part of their anti-piracy defenses. And what was really strange to me is that their fire hoses were blasting outboard into the sea. I learned later that the hoses were to keep pirates from climbing up the hulls, boarding and hijacking a ship. There are a few other defenses a ship could take razor wire on the deck railings, and in some cases, armed guards with automatic weapons. A shell oil tanker that I was on in these same pirate-infested waters a few months later took piracy very seriously. In addition to the fire hoses and barbed wire, the crew had mounted, tied to the railing, and made to look like an alert crew member, a life-size stuffed dummy dressed in yellow coveralls and hard hat, and to make it made the face grinning like an emoji smiley. But in my little boat just above the surface of the sea, I had no such protection or deception. But I once thought I was prepared. In an anchorage in Mexico known for unfriendly locals, I spread carp attacks on deck. It was known that local pirates, boarding at night, were usually barefoot, 
It was a dumb idea. One night I went out to take a pee over the side, and you guessed it, I was barefoot. I once had a gun. I had sailed away from San Francisco with my 30-30 rifle, but sold it in Australia to pay for diesel. That was no big deal. I realized that if I had a gun, I'd have to be prepared to use it. And actually, if I hadn't sold the gun, I don't think I'd be alive today. Really, the gun was just for show. Another time in Mexico, I was approached by a fast-moving fishing boat, and as I thought that was a little unusual, I nervously went down into the cabin and got out my rifle on deck and acted that I was like cleaning it. The two men in the boat were only fishermen who just wanted to trade fish for cigarettes. So the cargo ships out there in the channel this night were prepared. I wasn't. I was two nights out of Singapore, and I could see the glow of lights from the city on the horizon to the west. I was exhausted but excited. In 48 hours, I'd be sitting at a bar knocking back an ice-cold beer and getting a shower, eating some fresh food, and above all, at a safe and secure anchorage, I'd be getting a good night's sleep. These are such small but vital luxuries for a solo sailor. But it was two days out and I still had a long way to go. I was keeping well inside the shipping lanes. The waters outside the channel were pretty dangerous. Unmarked reefs, unlit fishing boats, floats, and nets formed as much of a gauntlet as the merchant vessels themselves. The cargo ships that chugged through the shipping lanes could not see the unicorn, and it was up to me to avoid them. One smaller tanker, its decks flooded in bright lights and lit up like Times Square on New Year's Eve, was behind me to starboard, fire hoses shooting out into the darkness. I watched her gradually change course, and then it turned sharply to port. I couldn't believe my eyes. The ship was trying to run me down. A ship charging at 15 knots? Well, there's not a hell of a lot I can do. I threw the tiller hard over, increased speed to a smoky six knots, and looked back and up at the clutter of bright lights above that was about to swallow me whole. I couldn't get out of its way fast enough. And then it dawned on me that the captain was probably assuming the small blip on his radar screen, that was me, was a pirate boat. On the edge of the traffic lanes, the ship finally returned to its original east-west course, and I throttled down and slumped back, exhausted and shaking and trying to relax. He had chased me out of the shipping channel where he couldn't go. I guess he was satisfied he had scared the hell out of a bunch of pirates. I steered back to the very edge, very inside edge of the lanes and keeping outboard of the line of ships. Still, I felt safer inside than out. I thought I smelled a cigarette. Like many non-smokers, I can smell someone smoking in an area where others cannot. There was no doubt this night someone close on an unseen boat was having a smoke. A Gudan Garam, the sweet clove-scented cigarette popular in Indonesia. Senses heightened, I tried to sort through the throaty vibrations of passing ships and strained to detect the shadows of a fishing boat that I was convinced I was about to hit. Admitting to my own building fears, I went below to switch on the VHF radio, just in case. The radio had seemed useless in the past. Frequencies were either jammed with shrill whistles, a favorite Asian calling technique, or the nighttime taunts between Filipino, Malaysian, and Indonesian fishermen anonymously calling each other, Hey, monkey, you monkey, you Indonesian monkey. Hey, you Philippine pig, you big monkey. 
a ship calling a distress or trying to get through to another vessel would be blocked unless it had a more powerful signal. I certainly didn't. Suddenly, I was thrown off my feet. I hit something. My first thought was an uncharted reef or a partially submerged container that had fallen off a ship. Maybe I did hit a fishing boat. Was I damaged? Was I taking water? Was I going to sink? My heart was beating in my throat. I heard the rumble of a boat engine nearby. Its vibrations were rattling the hull. Is this the boat I hit? The unicorn shook with another solid hit. And voices. Voices out here? Someone jumped onto my deck. Then another. The sound of people sent a wave of acid terror into my gut. Somebody is on my boat. I froze. The sudden unexpected sound of people when you've been alone for days is terrifying. I would think it is about as terrifying as discovering an intruder in your bedroom at home. I felt the panic of a trapped animal. The voices above me on deck were sounding more agitated and getting angrier. I know it. It was pirates. I pulled my Indonesian machete out of its scabbard and turned to run topsides. By God, I'm going to throw these fuckers off. But I had been warned. I had to try to calm myself and think. I looked at the knife in my hand. I looked up into the dark above. And for some unknown reason, I replaced the knife in its sheath. Okay, whatever. I would fight only as a last resort. My life was more important than the toys on board. I'd give them anything they wanted, except for the unicorn itself. On wobbly legs and scared to death, I pulled myself up the companionway steps. My heart was racing so bad, I thought I was going to faint. A military-style patrol boat about the length of the unicorn had tied up to me, low-slung and ghostly. The boat was only a colorless silhouette, except amidships, the orange glow of a cigarette. Two shadowy figures, shrouded in silence, pointed their rifles at me. I realized then that the decision not to resist was probably the right one. It was probably better they had guns. Had they been unarmed, I might have tried to fight back. Over their shoulders, I could see a third, smaller figure attempting clumsily to get into my boat. Holding my breath, I walked past the guns and offered him a hand. He was just a boy, barely in his teens. He looked up sharply, glowered angrily, and waved a long, thin knife in my face. He didn't need any help. There was plenty of light from passing ships to seaward, enough for me to see their features. One gunman was, in Indonesian terms, an old man, about 40, with sprigs of chin hair and a permanent frown and a pinched lupine face. He wore an old T-shirt and the camouflaged trousers of the TNI, that's the Indonesian military. The other was bare, a bare-chested teenager with a thin, developing mustache whose sullen eyes darted nervously and enviously over my boat. He was dressed also in military trousers. The patrol boat and their semi-military attire gave me an instant of hope. Maybe these guys were police officers or customs officials just checking my papers. It's not unusual in Indonesian waters, and I tried to make myself feel better. However, these were international waters, and it was the middle of the night, and they wore rolled-up ski masks, and they were barefoot. I remembered the carpet tacks I spread on the deck in Mexico. Wish I had them now, but glad I didn't.
I'd worked in Jakarta and had a basic knowledge of Bahasa Indonesia. I was comfortable with Indonesians and found that the people were generally a courteous bunch. I liked them. I don't know what got into me. It sounds weird, I know. But since I couldn't fight these guys, I actually welcomed them. My quavering voice belied my fear. Salamat datang! I can only try to be polite, a trait, a trait that the Indonesians find pretty important. It was said in, in Jakarta that if you were robbed in your home, the thief will apologize before killing you. I tried to refocus. Why the hell would they be on my little boat pointing guns at me? What the hell could they want? I could just not accept it. My fears were extreme, and the situation seemed at the same time like a bad dream. A container ship passed about a half mile abeam. Its deck lights cast an eerie glow upon us. It was so close. There was no way to signal it, no way to call for help. And I watched in frustration as the ship steamed past its water cannon, blasting off into the night, protecting it from pirates. We stood facing each other. No one had ever pointed a loaded gun at me before. And staring into the barrels, I was shaking with fear. I had to maintain some control. I watched the older boy massage the trigger of his rifle with his forefinger. His deep eyes, like black glass marble, drilled into mine with inexplicable anger. Suddenly he jabbed the barrel of his rifle into my ribs like he was egging me on, challenging me to make a stupid move. I stood before him with my teeth clenched, unflinching, and staring into those black eyes. He poked my gut again, jabbing harder, as if testing the tenderness of the meat. Emboldening, he jabbed again like the barrel of his gun was a bayonet. The hard metal felt like a dull knife. You know, I, I was so close, fucking hell, one little push, and this guy would be overboard. The older man's squeaky voice cut in like a razor, just before I was about to do something really stupid. Money, 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 he shouted. I shrugged and about to tell him that I had no money, and then he raised his rifle to my face. Yeah, okay, money, money, sure, I'll give you money. As I turned to go below, the surly youth slammed the butt of his rifle back against my head. I lurched forward, falling against the wire shrouds of the mast, and slipped to my knees. He yanked me up by my hair and kicked me ahead of him toward the cabin stairs. This little fucker is just a kid, I was thinking. I really wanted to react. The three of them followed me into the cabin below. Through tears of pain, I watched the old man's eyes scan my sea-going home. The unicorn had none of the toys found on most blue-water yachts. It has no radar, and it had uh, a wonky satellite navigation system, no sophisticated radios, no televisions, no weather fax machines, not any refrigeration. There were only shelves of some treasured books, a mahogany box for an old sextant, and a rack for binoculars. There wasn't a hell of a lot to steal. Still dazed, I needed to sit down. I nodded for them to sit. I reached for the thermos of old coffee that I had made hours earlier, and with shaky hands I splashed it into some mugs and slid them across the table. Please, I said. You sit here. Coffee. Drink coffee. There was a sickening crunch as the unicorn and the pirate vessel smashed against each other in the wake from a passing ship. Oh, man, I can imagine the damage to my hull. The angry kid, whose eyes never left mine, watched me cringe at the sound of the boats smashing against each other. His face brightened with a cruel, thin smile. I tried to ignore him and 
nodded toward an open tin of Nestle's sweet cream. Kopi susu, I offered. It's how coffee is consumed in Indonesia. The youngest boy placed his knife on the table, stirred in the cream with his forefinger, and slurped his cup noisily. This is surreal, I was thinking. The old man barked something, and the youngster, looking a little sheepish, put down his coffee. I noticed then the similarity between the two younger pirates. I poured myself a cup, opened a drawer, and pulled out a photo of my two sons taken years before. I was cutting a birthday cake, and my face was plastered in chocolate icing. My three-year-old hung around my neck, his fingers thick with goo, and my five-year-old was doubled over laughing in the background. In passable Indonesian, I told the old man that these were my kids, and I asked him if these were his boys. The old man, who up to this point had no real face at all, broke into a crooked grin, straightened himself proudly, and said they were his boys, and that he had two more sons back in his village. He picked up his coffee, finally, and took a sip. I pushed a cup toward his older son, and the youngest looked at his father for permission. His brother ignored the coffee and kept his eyes pinned on me. His challenging arrogance continued to test me. There wasn't any doubt that he was spoiling for a fight. The old man said something sharply, and the boy moved his eyes away from mine. For a moment, I was free from this kid's personal problem. There was a pretty tense silence until the father mentioned the name of his village. He and I spoke in stilted Indonesian about his home somewhere on a nearby island and his admiration for America, until impatient shouts from the boat outside reminded the old man what they had come for. The old man stared into his cup in silence. Still, I realized at any second this could explode. I held my breath. The old man pulled nervously at his chin hairs. He raised his eyes and without expression looked over the cabin. Very carefully, very slowly, I leaned over and pulled out binoculars from the rack and handed them over. Jeez, is that a smile? He took the binoculars and slipped the strap around his neck without acknowledgement. I watched his eldest son scan the cabin looking for his own spoils. His eyes settled on an open carton of Marlboros on top of a row of books, the cigarettes to exchange with passing fishermen. Rokok Titabagus. I tried to joke, mimicking a current Indonesian anti-smoking slogan, but my voice quavered and broke, and I don't think I said it very well. I suppose I must have sounded like a patronizing smartass. I reached overhead and handed the kid the carton. The old man stood up. Without a word, he shook my hand, and in the Islamic tradition of respect, he tapped his chest lightly, turned, climbed the companionate steps, and in silence he was followed by his sons. The pirate boat motored slowly off into the darkness. I could hear angry voices of a loud, angry discussion drift across the water. I think they were probably catching hell for not returning with better loot. I went to the side, held my throbbing head between my hands to keep it from exploding. I leaned over and threw up. In Singapore, I reported my attack to the Marine police, who told me that a Greek tanker had also been attacked only a few miles from where I had my encounter. Both attacks had been outside their territorial waters, and they said they could do nothing. I was luckier than the crew on the Greek ship. They had been hijacked and had vanished.
If you've enjoyed this tale from the edge, subscribe and like and share. And thank you for listening.